Hello, great minds! It's not Friday, but who the hell cares? It's Thanksgiving Thursday, and I couldn't pass up the chance to chat about this beautiful, bountiful, butterful day. So get yourself a drink, wash down that turkey leg, and raise a glass with drinks with great minds in history. Now I have to give a quick shout out to a podcast that I recently came across, Grandpa and Chill, in which host Brandon sits down with his co-host and his grandpa and all other members of all different generations to have all sorts of random conversations on topics you would never expect millennials and the silent generation to have. Some are funny, some are sad, but all are entertaining, chatting about a range of topics from presidential debates to sneaking snacks into movie theaters and even post offices. The show even features call-in guests, so even you, the listener, can participate. I won't lie, listening to this show makes me want to give my grandpa a call and just bullshit about whatever comes to mind, and the historian in me loves hearing how generations past feel about the shit show that is the 21st century. So follow the link in my show notes and check out Grandpa and Chill. Cheers! So it's Thanksgiving, and what a strange one it turned out to be. I mean, many of us have plenty to be thankful for, but I'm sure that many of us are celebrating today via Zoom, Skype, or just alone, while countless others brave or foolishly charge into the pandemic, depending, of course, on your perspective. But I will say this. I am certainly thankful for this show, my little DGMH family, my listeners, and all its antics, incest jokes, and beavers we have shared. And I think this is the perfect way to end Season 1, once and for all. But first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. Ah, beavers. What an adorable little creature. A critter that has absolutely nothing to do with Thanksgiving. Au contraire, my friends. Our furry French-fearing friend was front and center in what most people consider to be the picturesque first Thanksgiving. So, before we dive into this holiday's rich, oddly presidential history, which for us in the United States pretty much just means turkey, football, giant balloons, and pilgrims, let's talk about hats. When Europeans arrived in North America, they were extremely relieved to to find a plentiful supply of beaver that Europe just no longer had. You see, Europeans had pretty much slain every beaver they could find to feed their fashion. And almost regardless of when, early modern European fashion was all about getting some beaver. From commoners to pilgrims to the European aristocracy, beaver felt and fur hats dominated the 17th and 18th century fashion market and led to a bit of a furry frenzy in North America. I won't get too deep into this right now, as I have big plans for our furry friend down the road. But I will say this, from about 1630 into the 19th century, the beaver was at the center of every Euro-American war fought on the North American continent. Beaver wars, French and Indian wars, wars of 1812, all about getting that beaver. But let's get back to Thanksgiving. Naturally, we have to start this episode with the first Thanksgiving, and here I mean the first one in the Americas. By far the most famous one, the one with the beaver hat-wearing pilgrims. So the first Thanksgiving, which did not happen at the end of November, was more of a harvest feast that was celebrated over a series of days in the fall season, most likely in October. Taking place in the Plymouth Colony, let's see how much our tryptophan-filled holiday resembles the original. Now, pretty much everything we know about the first Thanksgiving 
Thanksgiving comes from one man's diary, Edward Winslow, a Plymouth colonist. He writes, quote, Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, that so we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our laborers, many of the Indians coming amongst us with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feast, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed upon our governor. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. From his writings, we can figure out that around 50 colonists were joined by some 90 to 100 Wampanoag Indians. Of the 50 colonists, only four married women attended the event, but that was actually a pretty large percentage of the female married population of the Plymouth Colony. Actually, it was the whole damn thing. In the first year of settlement, disease and other hardships had plagued Plymouth, and many of the Mayflower's women died within the first year of landing. In many ways, this harvest feast was a way of celebrating their survival of the first year. I will say that one commonality between these two very different worlds in attendance was the celebration of a good harvest and giving thanks. The English had done this in the past several times, and harvest feasts were fairly common in Europe, and various tribal entities of the Americas considered giving thanks part of a daily routine. Now let's take a second to run through the general celebration. In 1621, on the Plymouth Plantation, English pilgrims under the leadership of Governor William Bradford shared a feast with Wampanoag Native Americans under the leadership of Osemequin, who the English called Massasoit. They dined on venison, but the meal primarily consisted of fish and shellfish, as it was, of course, a coastal colony. Food from local gardens were part of the feast, possibly including pumpkins as well as cranberries. However, the Plymouth colonists certainly did not dine on turkey, pie, cranberry sauce, or potatoes. Hell, they didn't even have an oven. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the importance of language in the success of the first Thanksgiving and the role of, oh, I'm not even going to try and say his real name, Squanto. Yes, the English captive-turned-translator served as a liaison of sorts between the Plymouth colony and the local indigenous population. These communications no doubt played a crucial role in the development of temporary, even pragmatic, diplomatic friendship. But I think we will save Squanto's interesting story for another day. Either way, fall celebrations took deep roots in New England life. Even though peaceful relations with the native population would deteriorate after Massasoit's death in 1661, celebrating the fall harvest continued. And celebrating Thanksgiving wasn't a pilgrim nor harvest exclusive. In fact, English Days of Thanks had been held in celebration of royal births and major events like the defeat of the Spanish Armada. Historian James Baker even notes that the English celebrated a version of Thanksgiving in 1606 to commemorate the failed gunpowder plot of 1605. Today, of course, that is called Guy Fawkes Day. I doubt anyone remembers this, but I actually discussed Thanksgiving way back in the Washington saga as America's first president was the first to acknowledge a Thanksgiving holiday. Washington regularly had his soldiers give thanks in the midst of the War of Independence, especially after big battles and victories. In reality, Washington is largely responsible for American celebration and recognition of Thanksgiving when he proclaimed a National Day of Thanksgiving celebration with an official proclamation on October 3rd, 1789. 
and this was the first one celebrated officially at the end of November, this time on the 26th. Washington believed that the day should, quote, be observed by acknowledging with graceful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. He continues, to render our national government a blessing to all people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws, discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed. Although Washington expressed his liking of a National Day of Thanksgiving being part of the American tradition, Washington's dedication and recognition of the day did not cement Thanksgiving into the nation's framework. So what did? I will soon tell you. This episode of DGMH is brought to you by Podcorn, the easy, stress-free way to start monetizing your podcast. Anyone who has started a podcast from scratch dreams of rapid growth and generating some income, but making those dreams into realities can be challenging. But not with Podcorn. Personally, I had no idea who to reach out to, who would be interested in sponsoring my show, or where to even begin. Podcorn changed all of that. Podcorn is a place where podcasters can connect with great, relevant podcast sponsorship opportunities, and you get to work directly with every sponsor. Podcasters, big and small, can browse and choose opportunities right from the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly in a way that is easy for everyone. You never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is there to support you every step of the way. Podcorn gives podcasters creative freedom and full control of how and when we monetize. Just click on the link in my show notes to sign up with Podcorn and start making the most of your podcasting journey. So let's raise a glass to Podcorn. Cheers! Despite Washington's efforts, Thanksgiving tended to be a fringe holiday that was only irregularly celebrated. Adams sporadically continued the tradition during his presidency, while Jefferson outright dismissed it. His reasoning was simple and unsurprising to any Jefferson historian. He saw it as a gross and dangerous mixing of church and state. The federal government, in his mind, had no right to force the American people to follow a day of prayer and thanksgiving. However, Madison proclaimed a day of thanks on April 13, 1850, no doubt to recognize the end of the War of 1812. But he would be the last president to make such a proclamation until Abraham Lincoln. I guess Americans just didn't have much to be thankful for as they broke down the republic that Washington and the founders worked so hard to build. But states continued to acknowledge their own individual Thanksgiving holidays each year. Moving to the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln proclaimed a day of Thanksgiving in the middle of the war in 1863. Hoping to celebrate Union victories, he actually cemented the national nature of the holiday. The irony, of course, is that the nation was literally divided in two. But since 1863, the holiday has been celebrated annually by the country as a whole. Beyond this, it is believed that turkey pardons started with Lincoln as well, and all of this was reinforced by President Grant. Unsurprisingly, President Johnson did jack shit. Over the course of the 19th century, Americans began to develop and practice traditions that to us look very familiar. Everything from turkeys to pumpkin pie and even parades. Theodore Roosevelt even had a Thanksgiving dinner held for his White House staff upon finding out they were going to miss their own family Thanksgiving dinners. He really is the best. But another Roosevelt is where things became even more official, and dare I say it, problematic. Not only was Franklin Roosevelt the first president to celebrate the holiday outside of the United States, but he also tried to move the holiday to, quote, extend the holiday shopping season. His plan was harmless, but his Republican enemies disagreed. 
In fact, one Kansas governor and presidential hopeful, more like hopeless, Alf Landon, denounced the move saying Roosevelt, quote, sprung his decision on an unprepared country with the omnipotence of a Hitler. Maine's Republican governor outright refused to carve a turkey on an earlier date, choosing to instead dine on a can of sardines. The 1936 scandal over Thanksgiving celebration date came to be known as Franksgiving. In the end, 23 states would follow FDR's lead, while the remaining either chose to hold the original date or, rather pragmatically, celebrate both. On October 6, 1941, Congress and the executive branch finally agreed to settle on the date of the fourth Thursday of November by a joint resolution forever ending the debate as to when Thanksgiving would be celebrated. Little did we know as a country that this squabble would be the least of our problems as just two months later, America would be at war. So why do we celebrate? Is it Washington, Lincoln, FDR, the Pilgrims? Actually, it might not be any of them, but instead an editor and author named Sarah Josepha Hale, who is someone we have all heard of, even if we don't know it. Sarah Hale is the author of the famous children's nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Sarah Hale is quite the interesting figure and certainly a great mind in her own right. She successfully advocated for the creation and completion of the Bunker Hill Memorial, as well as raised funds alongside people like Eliza Hamilton for the creation of the Washington Monument. A New England native, Hale, then Sarah Buell, was briefly a school teacher and writer before marrying an attorney, David Hale. Her husband was a rare type of patriarch who actually encouraged Sarah to continue and pursue her passion for writing. And after his death, his Freemasons Lodge helped her to publish her first book of poems, titled The Genius of Oblivion, in 1823. Hale would publish a novel four years later titled Northwood, Life of North and South, which was one of the first novels written on the subject of slavery. Following the success of this book, she was asked to move to Boston to serve as editor of Ladies Magazine and later American Ladies Magazine. It was there that she published countless poems and stories, including Mary Had a Little Lamb. She would spend much of her life advocating for the advancement of women's education and served as a patron of Vassar College. But what does this have to do with Thanksgiving? Well, I'll tell you. As early as 1827, Hale had been advocating for Thanksgiving to be recognized as a national holiday, printing dozens of articles in her magazines. She continued her campaign for more than three decades, while writing for Gaudy's Lady Book, where she once remarked, quote, Thanksgiving, like the 4th of July, should be a national festival observed by all people as an exponent of our Republican institutions. She even published recipe books for Thanksgiving meals and called on the president as the one person who could declare Thanksgiving a national holiday. In her career, she wrote to five presidents calling for action. Zachary Taylor, the first she wrote to, left it to the states to decide in 1849, but her endless campaigning finally paid off when Lincoln made his famous 1863 proclamation. In 1877, at the age of 89, Hale finally retired as an editress, as she preferred to be called. God, I hope I don't have to work till I'm that old. The year that Hale retired was actually the same year that Thomas Edison made his first successful phonograph recording, a machine that he used to record for the first time and echo the words, Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow. Hale died two years later. 
Unsurprisingly, the United States isn't the only place to celebrate a Thanksgiving holiday. Many countries do, some for slightly different reasons. Of course, our neighbor to the north with similar English roots, Canada, also celebrates Thanksgiving, but not in November. Canadian Thanksgiving occurs on the second Monday in October, but for very similar reasons. Pretty much all celebrations of Thanksgiving are centered on giving thanks for something. So in a sense, I guess they're all pretty much the same. Liberia in Africa, Grenada and St. Lucia in the Caribbean, and Brazil all celebrate an annual national Thanksgiving holiday for their own unique reasons. And even some in the Netherlands celebrate in large part due to the fact that the original Thanksgivers, the Pilgrims, lived in Leiden in the years preceding their American voyage. But no one does it like the U.S. Many a memory of a table full of family members drinking wine halfway to a food-induced coma do I have, and I wouldn't trade them for anything in the world. Now let's move to the drink. Today I am busting out an old headache of mine, Wild Turkey 101, as I couldn't think of a better shot to do, and honestly, I needed a little bit of a break from tequila. But that's not all I'm drinking. I also decided to bust into a holiday beer as we approach the, quote, holiday season. Guinness's Imperial Gingerbread Spiced Stout, aged in Kentucky bourbon barrels. I already knew I was gonna like it when I saw the title. Today, though, I'm not going to rate both drinks, Wild Turkey will no doubt show up on the show again, so today I I am just going to rate the Guinness. Mm. Ooh, ho, ho, ho. So I've been drinking this the whole time, but I just took a big gulp and it is damn good. So, in terms of taste, I have to give this a solid six points. It's got a delicious bourbon barrel flavor, much like Kentucky Bourbon Barrel, a favorite of mine, with a hint and nice aroma of gingerbread. It's a lighter stout, it doesn't really sit very heavy, and I could probably see myself having one or two with a neighbor sometime down the road. So yeah, I'm going to give it six points for taste. In terms of price, well, this one is god-awful. For a four-pack, it cost $16.99 at Total Wine, so I pretty much have to put it on the lower end of price, so we'll give it two points. As far as returnability goes, I can see this becoming an annual staple in my holiday purchases, much like Pumpkin Barrel Ale, in which I only make one purchase per season, because I cannot afford more. So in terms of returnability, I'll give it a solid four points for what I guarantee will be many annual returns. Coming in at 11 out of 18 points, I have to say that I'm a little disappointed that this only leaves the show with four crowns. I kind of want to throw it a nice buzz bonus though, which is something I might have to add down the road, as this beer is 11% alcohol by volume, and I'm likely to have a nice little buzz by the end of this beer. Okay, well, that's it. Thanksgiving history is certainly an interesting one, and one that many have probably heard before. But if you didn't, now you have. Again, I am thankful for all my listeners, and I would be even more thankful if you would follow the show on Instagram and Twitter and join the DGMH Facebook page. Please be sure to tell all your drinking buddies about the show and don't forget to leave the show a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you're looking for even more great content, including cut segments from your favorite episodes, unedited versions of the show, or bonus content, then again head over to my Patreon page. Remember though, this is Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving is all about being thankful for what you have, but that doesn't mean that we should forget about about everyone else. So I'm going to make a pledge to you. For every new listener that signs up for my Patreon page between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I will take the first month's donations and donate them to a local women's shelter in honor of Sarah Hale and of course because I think it's the right thing to do. Just visit the link in my show notes to get there and, you know, help the show and help a good cause. 
Well, I hope you all enjoy your Thanksgiving celebrations. I know I will. By the time you're listening to this episode, I will be reunited with my family who is typically, on average, 1,100 miles away. So enjoy your Thanksgiving celebrations, however strange they may seem this year. Be thankful, be kind, and have a drink or two. This holiday wasn't always celebrated, but it sure is now. And for that, we should all be thankful. Cheers! Cheers!